0: Good morning. My name is John Sapeka. I oversee community life and discipleship here at Zionsville Fellowship. So this means I have the unique privilege of partnering with each and every one of you as you seek to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus. It's so, so good to be with you this morning. This morning, we'll continue our series in the book of Ephesians in the Bible. And let me begin by saying that the Bible can be a really difficult book. The Bible can be difficult because it confronts us in ways we don't expect or want. The Bible can be difficult because it is sometimes surprising or even confusing. The Bible can be difficult because it's sometimes hard to believe and to do. And yet, because the Bible is God's Word... Because the Bible is precious to us, despite these challenges and because of these challenges, I so look forward to opening God's word with you this morning. So with this in mind, we'll look together at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17. So turn with me if you have one of your journals to Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 17. Follow along as I read And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Would you pray with me and ask God to help us overcome human and supernatural challenges as we look at his word together? Let's pray. Father, if your spirit does not come now and cause us to relish in these truths from your word, then my words and my efforts are worthless. Father, would you encourage us and challenge us by your word this morning. You intimately know our hearts. You know our life circumstances, all of our burdens, all of our joys, all of our weaknesses. So we need you to speak words of life, words of hope to us afresh this morning. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Kill the Dragon, Get the Girl. This is the plot summary for countless great stories. Kill the Dragon, Get the Girl. From fairy tales to modern movies, we are captivated time and time again as a hero rises to slay the dragon, whoever that enemy might be, all in pursuit of rescuing someone Or something precious, perhaps a literal princess, perhaps uh, a kingdom, or even all of humanity, saving us from the brink of disaster. There is a reason we deeply resonate with this basic plot line of kill the dragon, get the girl. This is the story of the Bible. Jesus is the long-awaited dragon slayer. He ultimately crushes the head of our greatest enemy, Satan, sin, suffering, and death. He crushes death unexpectedly by being crushed himself, dying on the cross, rising victorious three days later, decisively winning this epic war against the dragon. The very moment it appeared that Satan had gained the upper hand against God the Father, Jesus actually dealt the fatal crushing blow of Satan's defeat. Death was crushed to death as the Son of God, the long-anticipated Savior of the world, died on the cross. So in this way, Jesus kills the dragon, and in this way, Jesus gets the girl. He wins his bride, the church, you and me. So today, we live on the other side of this climactic victory, this crushing of Satan, that de- dreadful dragon. After Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, God the Father placed all things under Christ's feet, under his authority and dominion and reign. And we today, we fight against this kingdom of darkness. This is the context of this passage. Today we live in the wake, in light of Christ. Victory before the fullness of his victory has been realized. Our enemy is defeated, but not fully vanquished. So, here in Ephesians 6, Paul pulls back the curtains on the realities of this spiritual war. And it seems like it's out of left field, but Paul commands us, here in verses 10 through 17, he commands us to be strengthened. To be strengthened to fight. In this famous passage of scripture, we see what it looks like to fight spiritual warfare in the midst of ordinary daily life. We'll see this morning that we must be strengthened. We must be strengthened by God to fight. And we must fight with all that we are given. So first, we see we must be strengthened by God to fight. We need to be strengthened for this epic battle. We need the kind of strength only God can provide. Look with me again at verse 10. Paul says, Finally, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Take careful note of that first word. Finally, Paul says so much with such a simple little word. Perhaps not in the way we expect. This is not merely the final command after a long list of commandments. This is not merely a final note or a sub-point Paul's making. This is not merely a transition or an appendix to what Paul's saying. This is not an afterthought. Finally introduces the climactic summary of all that Paul has been writing in Ephesians thus far. Paul pictures what it looks like for Christians to live out their faith in the most vivid of terms. He does so as the continuation of all the themes and ideas he has already mentioned thus far throughout Ephesians. One might summarize Ephesians as follows, Christian, cherish the riches available to you in Christ through the gospel, chapters 1 through 3. In light of this, live vibrant, bold, beautiful lives of faith because of these riches, chapters 4 through 6. And so now Paul says, most of all, finally, know that this life takes place in the context of war, a battle against one's own flesh, that is, our old self, that we have to put to death, and against the world. Who loves darkness and hates God, and against Satan and his minions, finally indicates that this passage serves as the culminating summary of chapters four through six. So, what exactly does Paul want us to know as the most important command in all of chapters four through six? He says, Be strong. Verse 10, finally be strong. Paul commands us to do something, something we cannot do for ourselves. I hate those kind of commands. They're hard, right? So, Paul's not saying that we must muster up courage. Be strong. Do it. He's not calling us to draw on a wealth of internal fortitude that, frankly, you and I, we don't actually have if we're being honest with ourselves. So, where are we to go to be strengthened? Where is the source of the strength that we need for these battles? In the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the strength of his might. Paul calls us to be strengthened in the Lord Jesus, to be strengthened in the strength of God's might. This is a call to take refuge in God, to pursue deep dependence on God. Linguistically speaking, this paragraph actually appears to be a sort of battle cry, a call to arms that a general might make before rushing into battle. And this is a strange sort of call to battle because it's a call to recognize your weakness. Paul's saying, Christian, recognize your weakness. Embrace your weakness. And in in doing so, you will be strengthened. You need strength from outside of yourself. Because our enemy is great and because he is devious and wants nothing less than your destruction and damnation. So Christian, if you feel weak right now, this is for you. We know we are too weak to fight against our own flesh, let alone against an invisible spiritual being. Christian, relish in this weakness. This is good news because God has ample supply. For all of our dire needs. What a unique battle cry. Paul here is not being alarmist. He's a realist. Because we have a great enemy. However, there is an incredible reservoir of strength available to us. Christian, do you feel weak? Are you weary from this past week's challenges? You're qualified to be strengthened. Whether you are weary from your own sin if you're weary from your failures, if you're tired of others sinning against you, if you are freshly wounded by the tragedy of pain and brokenness, of suffering and death, if you are discouraged this morning by your slow transformation into Christ likeness, you are amply, amply qualified to be strengthened in the Lord this morning, even now. And the good thing is, we actually need it, so you're qualified. Christian, do you feel like Al is actually going pretty well for you? Do you find yourself encouraged this morning because your circumstances in life are actually pretty steady and stable? Or perhaps you freshly sense God's nearness. Maybe you perceive real, tangible, recent spiritual growth, transformation in your heart. Praise God. And take heed, lest you fall, because even though you have been strengthened by God, you always need to be strengthened by God continually, even now, even now. And if you are not yet a Christian, this battle cry is an invitation to you to set down your arms of resistance, to admit to yourself and to God that you have been in rebellion against God Proving you don't actually love God. Respond now. Call out to Jesus for mercy. And he will show you mercy. He has mercy for his enemies who repent of their treason. The only way you can be made right with God is through Christ's death and resurrection. Christ will set you free. Not just from the enslavement to sin that you struggle with. But from being mastered by Satan and his deceptive schemes. So this is wonderful news, but let me share the best part of all about this call to be strengthened this morning. We are promised strength of a magnitude beyond comprehension. Turn back with me to Paul's earlier prayer from Ephesians 1. So turn to Ephesians 1, verses 16 through 22. Paul says this, according to the working of his great might. And what exactly is this power and this great might referring to? Verse 20, this is the great might that the Father worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. This strength is sin-crushing might. This is a death-conquering might. This is authority-possessing might. This is dragon-defeating, bride-buying might. We are commanded to be strengthened by God by means of the strength of God's very might. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is the power we are strengthened by. So if you are at all like me and you ever doubt God's ability to continually transform you, to change your heart, to help you fight against your sin, to persevere in the midst of difficulty, look back on the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Christ. That same power that caused that is the power that strengthens you and me. The same power that calls the that caused the pulseless heart of Christ to beat again is ours. The same power that breathed life into Christ's lungs is ours. The same power that crushed Satan and all of his delights, sin, suffering, and death, that power is ours. Not because of us, but despite us. Because of Christ. Christ has dealt the death blow to death with his death. We are purchased in him. We are found in him. We belong to him and we are kept by him forever. And we have access to this power. Incredible. That's a lot of power. But do we need it? Do we really need that much power? Absolutely. Throughout Ephesians, we've already seen Paul speak about the powerfully deceptive nature of our flesh, and the great hostility of the world against Christians. But now we see Paul speak about the most powerful enemy of all, Satan and his minions. We need to be strengthened in order to be prepared to fight, fighting with the very armor of God so that we would stand against the schemes of the devil This war is waged in reality invisible to our eyes. We need supernatural power, the kind of strengthening only God can provide. Look again at verses 10 through 12. Finally, Paul says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against mere flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is a difficult reality to comprehend. The Bible can be a hard book. A scheming devil, rulers and authorities, cosmic powers over darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, Whoa. I, I love the Bible, and I love it's a difficult book, but this one, this is strange. This sounds like the stuff of fairy tales. Evil, invisible spiritual beings who are at war with us? Really? Even if you're like me, and you wholeheartedly embrace the truthful reality of God's Word, this is a tough one not necessarily to, to mentally comprehend but to meaningfully embrace reality in light of it satan exists he hates god he hates me he hates you he hates our friendships he hates our marriages he hates our children he hates our coworkers he hates our bosses he And these other rulers and principalities and cosmic powers and spiritual forces of evil, they hate God and they hate us. And they scheme against us. Satan schemes against you and me. He whispers lies to me. He dangles temptations before your very eyes. He makes empty promises that appeal to our flesh. He afflicts you. He afflicts me. Time and time again, with half-true accusations. He opposes me as I try to follow Jesus, and he opposes you in every effort you make to do the same. Every moment of every day, Satan and his minions are engaged in spiritual warfare against you and against me. Not in isolated events, 24-7. So... You might be thinking, reasonable, John, seems like the Bible is saying that, but what does that even look like? Think with me for a moment. Ponder with me about what Satan takes pleasure in, sin, suffering, death. This exposes the reality of spiritual warfare in our lives on a daily basis. Satan loves anger and hatred. Have you been angry recently? Satan loves slander and gossip. Have you spoke ill of another person recently? Have you been unreasonable or divisive? Satan loves deception. Have you told half-truths at the expense of the truth? Satan loves hard Heartedness? Have you been slow to confess your sin? Or are you living in unrepentant sin? Now, we can be quick to qualify the answers to these questions by saying yes, all of these things originate from our flesh, from our hearts, from the old self that we must put to death, that we must crucify. It's biblical and reasonable and necessary to recognize the source of our anger and hatred and slander, gossip, deception, hard-heartedness comes from our own hearts. So each of us take full ownership and responsibility for these sins of commission and omission. These actions come from the overflow of our hearts. However... And this is where it's hard for many of us. We are fools, fools, to ignore the extent of the enmity and hostility Satan has against God and us. We are naive to ignore the role that Satan and his minions play in all sin, in all suffering, even death. Satan and his minions meticulously plan strategies to cause each of us individually to stumble to afflict us, to discourage us, to stifle us. Now, all of this thinking about Satan this past week reminded me of a story from Greek mythology, the sirens in particular. Sirens are surprisingly similar to Satan. They are deceptive liars who desired the destruction of others. They lived on a rocky rocky island in the middle of a sea, And they would sing out beautiful songs to lure sailors to sure death, to their demise, disaster on the jagged rocks in the shallow waters. Those who heard the songs of the sirens rarely lived to tell the tale. In fact, in Greek mythology, only two sets of sailors ever dared resist the sirens' seductive tunes. First was Odysseus. Odysseus ordered his men to put beeswax in their ears so they would not hear the music of the sirens as they sailed by. He then ordered his men to tie him up to the ship's mast so he would hear the enchanting tunes of the sirens but not be able to physically abandon the ship and swim to his demise. He also told his sailors that no matter how much he begged and pleaded with them, they should not untie him. So when they passed near the siren's island... Odysseus started to beg his shipmates to let him free. No one heard him because of the beeswax, and they tied him ever tighter. And though the experience was tortuous, even painful, Odysseus and his men survived the encounter. Now, there was also one other group of men who survived the sirens' seductive song, and it was Jason and the Argonauts. They managed to successfully pass by the sirens in a very different way. They were not saved by their brute force or clever tactics or sheer willpower. They had Orpheus, and Orpheus was a masterful musician. In fact, Orpheus played music that was so beautiful, the men couldn't even hear the seductive song of the sirens. In this way, the sailors avoided the temptation to follow the siren song. They avoided their demise by a more beautiful tune. And though the sirens attempted to lure the Argonauts off of their course, the wicked singing was drowned out by the sweeter music of Orpheus. Now, if you think that those mythical, non-existent, pretend sirens were deadly in their deception, how much more must we recognize the threat that Satan poses to our eternal well-being? Like Odysseus and Jason and the Argonauts, we need help. We need more than just the self-restraint that Odysseus sought and obtained. Sheer willpower to fight our flesh and to fight Satan's temptations is frankly insufficient. Like Jason and the Argonauts, we need a more beautiful song. A song that outshines all lesser songs that tempt us to settle for shallow joys. We have this song. It is the beautiful song of the gospel, and God equips us with the armor of God, armor of God, defensive and offensive weapons rooted in the gospel, for our protection, for our flourishing, and for the spread of His glory. Given the incredibly nefarious intentions of Satan and his minions, we need more help than Odysseus and the Argonauts. We need supernatural strength only God can provide. So how do we access such power? And what exactly is this power for? This leads us to our second point, which Paul makes plain throughout the rest of this passage in Ephesians. Follow along as I read from verses 10 through 17. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. How? Put on the whole armor of God. having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. It goes on in verse 18 to talk about prayer, which Edgar will speak about. But we see that we must fight With all of the resources that we are given, we are commanded to be strengthened in God's power. And we receive this strength by putting on the whole armor of God. Paul calls us to fight. This is a call to fight. Put on the armor in its different components and in its entirety. So let's note the obvious here that I've been saying all along. Paul assumes we will fight That we will be actively engaged in fighting this war individually and collectively. We aren't strengthened by God's death conquering strength only to take a lazy day at the beach. Now, that said, sometimes lazy days at the beach are a great way to fight spiritual warfare. We don't wear the whole armor of God merely because it's fashionable, we wear it so we would stand against our enemy and fight. In other words, we actually need to fight. This past week, it's been a sobering thought for me to realize just how little I have directly and thoughtfully prepared for this reality, the ongoing onslaught of spiritual warfare in my daily life. How little have I consciously considered that Satan is on a white-hot pursuit of my destruction and my damnation. How about you? What incident in this past week of your life might make a lot more sense in light of spiritual warfare? Now, in all of this, God remains sovereign. Christ rules over Satan, over sin, over suffering, yes, even over death. And there is some mystery here. We know Satan has some measure of freedom to wreak havoc on humanity, even now, because we live after Christ's sin-severing, death-conquering death and resurrection, but we also live before his climactic, victorious return. So now we come to the most famous portion of this passage: the different pieces of the armor of God. As you well know and have probably experienced, This is Sunday school gold. This armor is not only for children, though. It's for you. It's for me. You might be wondering why I haven't spent much time addressing the different aspects of the armor. And frankly, given the time left, I won't spend that much time. But why? Well, I I will unpack aspects of the armor. But the reason Paul speaks about this metaphorical image of armor is not so we would be preoccupied with the metaphor, but it's reality. Paul wants us to see we have to fight. It's not about the armor. It's about being engaged in the fight. And yet, we really are called to put on the armor of God, which means we have to understand what we're called to put on. We must understand the function of each part of the armor so we can actually, you know, put it on for fighting. And yet, there's also a sense in Ephesians that Paul has already called the Christians to put this armor on. Earlier in chapter 4, he calls the Ephesians to put off their old self, to be renewed in the spirit of their minds, and to put on what? To put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. These aren't separate categories. They're very similar realities. So let's look again at verse 13 and following. So Paul explains here how we are to be strengthened by God. We put on the whole armor of God. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. We put this armor on so we can withstand in the evil day. That is, so we can persevere in this current age in history where Satan still runs amok though he has been decisively defeated. And though we don't always experience the same level of hostility and the same level of oppression from Satan and his minions, we must not fall prey to a false sense of security. We must stand verse 14 by being equipped with the armor of God. We fasten truth around our waist as a belt. We put on the breastplate of righteousness. We put on to our feet the readiness given by the gospel. We take up the shield of faith. We take the helmet of salvation, and we take the sword of the spirit. So what does it look like to fasten the belt of truth around our waist? Well, we can do so in two ways. When we take the truth of the gospel and we counter Satan's lies. We also do it by actually speaking what is true without deception or misrepresentation. Be truth-tellers, even when it's costly. This is a way you kill the dragon. Now, being truth-tellers is something we sang of earlier in A Mighty Fortress is Our God. The, the song goes like this. Though this world with devil fills should threaten to undo us, We will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. What is that word? Is it Christ? I don't think so. I think it's actually most likely that Luther had in mind the word Liar. Call Satan what he is when he tempts you. Liar. That is how we wear this belt of truth. Next, we're called to put on the breastplate of righteousness whenever we recall and appreciate the reality of our new identity in Christ. Christ has given us his righteousness. Righteousness. Such that we truly are now righteousified before God. No more can Satan taunt us as we struggle to live out the reality of what Christ has already accomplished for us. Every dark whisper suggesting that we are too vile, too guilty, too worthless, too perverse, too enslaved by sin to be cherished and loved by God that can be repelled as it bounces off of this breastplate, that wire. In the midst of spiritual warfare, the words we sang earlier ring true. God is my one defense, my true righteousness. Oh God, how I need you. We're called to put on the readiness given by the gospel onto our feet whenever we find ourselves resting at peace with a sense of deep comfort and joy and contentment because of the gospel. And this readiness has to do with preparedness to fight. It comes to us from the gospel. God has decisively made peace with us rebels, with Jews and Gentiles alike, you and me, through Christ's death and resurrection. And so, when you've tasted the sweetness of this gospel, you can be like Orpheus, and begin to sing a more beautiful song. This beautiful song of good news can serve as a means of protection, protection from temptation, and this beautiful song can serve as an announcement, an invitation for others to come and receive the same peace that comes from the gospel. We're called to take up the shield of faith whenever we actually flex our God-given muscles to protect us, to protect us from real attacks from a real enemy. We are needy creatures, notoriously known for our stubbornness. We often refuse to recognize our neediness unless we become uh, inconvenienced or challenged or desperate. So when we visualize this metaphorical shield of faith, We should envision, not a tiny little circle here, we should envision a massive full body shield that covers and thoroughly protects every inch of our body. It will protect us from every last fiery arrow fired by Satan and his minions. This is an amazing image for a surprising reality because when we exercise our trust in God, who is most assuredly worthy of our trust, when we do that, when we exercise faith, we thwart attacks from Satan. We also slay this serpent. Many among us, many among us have recently lost loved ones, and others among us live moment by moment in great affliction and difficulty. Perhaps the rancid taste of death and suffering is fresh on your taste buds. If so, know that your sorrow and your lament are not antithetical or at odds with faith. This actually may mean your taste buds are working properly. Sin, suffering, sorrow, death, these are fundamentally not meant to be. We are created to be with God forever in perfect joy and harmony. And that is not the case after the fall. And so if you are freshly grieving, marvel at God's provision of this shield called faith. Doubts about God's character, doubts about God's purposes will abound in these moments. They'll be flung like fiery arrows by our enemy. But we know Satan is a liar. Death won't have the last laugh because death has been crushed by death and faithful death always leads to resurrection. So may we all be strengthened with power through God's Spirit in our inner being that Christ might dwell in our hearts through the shield of faith, especially in the midst of great sorrow and suffering. We're called to take the helmet of salvation whenever we live out the reality of this salvation that Christ has accomplished. Not merely because we await a future salvation, but because of the impact that our salvation has today. This helmet of salvation is helpful today. Christian, you have been made alive. You have been rescued from your enslavement to sin, the kind of enslavement that leads only to death. You have been resurrected with Christ You now sit with Christ in the heavenly places. Even now, you join with him in the expansion of his reign and his rule over this world. This ongoing, present nature of our salvation means that every act of repentance is a defiant act of conquering rebellion against Satan. It halts the spread of his darkness. Every exposing of darkness in our own hearts, in the hearts of others, purges evil from among us. Our experience of the sin-crushing power of salvation further demonstrates Christ's authority over sin, over suffering, over death, and over Satan himself. Lastly, we must take the sword of the Spirit, that is the Word of God, whenever we apply Scripture in offensive and defensive maneuvers in spiritual warfare. So offensively, we wield the sword of the Spirit whenever we sing forth the gospel like Orpheus, a beautiful song of truth, in order to liberate unbelievers from the blinding influence of Satan. When we shine forth Christ in all of his splendor and beauty, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Indeed, there are few things more disgusting to Satan than for the beauty of Christ to be shown, seen, and savored in the Bible. This means that Satan doesn't just hate the preaching of the Bible this very moment. This means he hates our devotionals. It means he hates our Bible studies and the moments we encourage and challenge one another with scriptures. Of course, this assumes that these actions, these engagements with the Bible are faithful, truthful, spirit-empowered, and lead to transformation. Because otherwise, Satan actually relishes in the misuse of Scripture, either in heresy or sloppy theology or non-application to one's own life. So defensively speaking, there is nothing more powerful than reciting scripture from memory. This aids you in the immediate moments of temptation and it helps you in the wake of either God-empowered victory because you know the temptation to pride will rise. It will help you in the wake of failure lest you fall into self-pity, self-loathing instead of godly regret or sorrow. So use scripture offensively and defensively in this fight. So much more could be said about the armor of God. So much more. But in all of this, we must recall the most foundational part of this passage. Join the fight to kill the dragon and get the girl. This summary of the Bible storyline sounds bloody. The Bible is a blood-drenched book. The Bible is not unaware of the gory drama that has unraveled since the fall Even now, even now, war rages on between God and Satan, between God's people and Satan's underlings. We often ignore or forget about this reality, and we need the strength and protection God alone provides. So let's go to Him. Let's lean on Him, and let's be strengthened to fight. Let's pray. Father, we marvel at what Christ has accomplished, crushing sin, rising from the dead. We love that you have given Christ authority over all of these beings, these spiritual beings who crave our destruction. And so we ask that you would give us your strength to help us fight, to persevere and to see your gospel go forth to every tribe, tongue, and nation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand and receive the benediction from God's word? Let us go and put off our old selves, which belongs to our former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Let us be renewed in the spirit of our minds, and let us put on the new self, the armor of God, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, especially as we make war on sin, on suffering, death, and Satan. Amen. Amen.